Well, take your Bibles this evening and turn with me once again to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. In this third and final consideration of Isaiah's prophecy regarding the promised Messiah, looking exclusively to the preserved words given in verses 10 through 12, I want us to reflect upon what Messiah will accomplish in his death. Thus far from Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah has declared who Messiah is in verses 1 through 4, as well as why Messiah needs to come in verses 5 through 10. In verses 1 and 2, we are told that Messiah will be the mighty arm of the Lord who will be revealed to men as a man. He will be God come in the flesh, divinity wrapped in humanity. As Isaiah has already proclaimed in Isaiah 7, 14, and Isaiah 9, 6. Messiah, from Isaiah's perspective, will be the promised child conceived by a virgin whose name shall be called Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Messiah will be the mighty God, the eternal word who tabernacles among men. And then connected with this prophetic truth pronounced in verses 1 and 2, is the detailed description regarding what kind of man Messiah will be like when he comes. And looking specifically to what is said in verse 2, we find that when Messiah comes, he will grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. Meaning then that he will grow up without notice. To the eyes of men, he will appear to be a worthless twig rather than a mighty pine or olive tree. Characterizing his person, Isaiah describes Messiah as one who is going to come into this world from a barren place who will live the greater portion of his life in obscurity. And what Isaiah is saying is essentially this. When Messiah comes, he will be a man who appears weak and insignificant. When he comes, there will be no royal entrance, no ticker tape parade, no grand celebration, no fanfare, and he will live in a portion of the world that, compared to the great cities of the earth, will seem to be dry ground. And then connected with this truth is the prophetic certainty that when Messiah comes, he will be a man void of physical beauty. Isaiah says regarding Messiah's external looks in verse 2 that there will be no form or comeliness that men should naturally desire to follow him. Isaiah says that there would be nothing in his physical appearance that would attract the lost world to him. And then from his birth to his death, there's nothing going to be of angelic glow about his countenance that would persuade men that he is the God-man. Concerning the Messiah, he will appear to be a common man, which inevitably will lead him to be despised and rejected of men, a man who encounters great sorrow and great grief. 
So who is the promised Messiah spoken of by Isaiah? Well, he is the God-man who appears to be weak and insignificant, who is void of physical beauty, who will encounter derision and rejection as well as sorrow and grief. This is Isaiah's detailed prophecy regarding who Messiah will be. This is what is pronounced of Messiah in verses 1 through 4. Now, turning to the second part of the chapter in verses 5 through 10, Isaiah describes for us why he, the Messiah, must come to earth. So in verses 1 through 4, we have prophecy regarding his person. And then in verses 5 through 10, we have prophecy regarding his purpose. For what purpose is God sending a Messiah to earth? For what reason do the people of this world need a Messiah? Well, the text answers this question for us. God is sending the promised Savior into the world because man is naturally rebellious and sinful and thus separated from God. Contrary to what the world believes, Isaiah tells us that all men are sinners before God. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned everyone to his own way. The recurring mentioning of men in this text being filled with iniquity and transgressions answers the question regarding why Messiah needs to come. God is sending a Messiah because man in his sinful condition, does not have the ability to save himself. Sinful man cannot wash away his own sin. Sinful man cannot, in his lost condition, work his way to God. And then connected with this truth is the second truth, united with Messiah's purpose in his coming. God is sending a Messiah into the world because the only way lost men can be saved is through the death of the promised Savior. Isaiah declares through verses 5 through 10 that Messiah is going to be wounded and bruised, oppressed and afflicted, scourged and cut off, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. So why, from Isaiah's perspective, is Messiah coming? Why must a Savior be delivered? Well, Messiah must come because sinful men need someone to appease God's wrath for their sin against God. Messiah is coming because the world needs a mediator. The world needs a go-between to break down the middle wall of partition that exists between them and God. And then the third and final truth that we reflected upon from Isaiah's prophecy regarding why Messiah needs to come is the obvious biblical truth that God in His love, God in His grace, ordained and promised a Savior to come as a sin substitute for men. Tracing all the prophecies recorded from Genesis 3 to the end of Malachi, we have promise after promise that God would send a Savior to die on the behalf of His people. 
And this very promise is interwoven and connected to the thread of salvific promises given throughout Scripture. And this is the very theme, this is the focal point of God's Word. God's Word is about man sinning against God, God promising to send a Savior to rescue men from their sin, and God sending a Savior to die for sinners. So back to our question. Why does Messiah need to come? Messiah must come so that Isaiah's words might be fulfilled. Messiah must come so that the world will know that God is God, and as God, He is a promise-keeping God. So let's recap. In verses 1-4 through of Isaiah 53, we have prophecies concerning who Messiah is. Prophecies concerning Messiah's person. And then in verses 5 through 10, we have prophecies concerning why Messiah must come. Prophecies concerning Messiah's purpose. Now, looking to what is said in verses 10 through 12, the third part of Isaiah's prophecy that I want to emphasize in this chapter is what the promised Messiah will accomplish in his life and death. Notice Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 10. Isaiah says, yet. In other words, in light of everything that has been said of Messiah's person and purpose. And then go up one verse and look at the connecting thoughts. Isaiah says, though Messiah will do no violence, neither will any deceit be found in his mouth. Yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So the question for our consideration tonight is, what, if anything, will Messiah accomplish in his coming to earth. Isaiah makes it clear that at the time he wrote this prophecy, that Messiah is coming. Isaiah makes it clear that Messiah will be a man who is despised and rejected. The prophecy declares that he will be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we know that Messiah will suffer a painful death for the sins of others. And this Messiah is the God-man. So the question before us now is, what, if anything, will Messiah's death bring about? Will he just die to die? Or will his death accomplish anything? Well, let me give you two final truths 
that answer this specific question from the final three verses of this prophecy. Looking to the first part of verse 10, notice with me first that Messiah's death will be according to God's sovereign pleasure and plan. Messiah's death will be according to God's sovereign pleasure and plan. Now, while this truth may seem obvious to most of us, I think it's important to clarify that Messiah's agonizing death will not be something that happens by mere accident, but something that transpires by divine appointment. Isaiah says when Messiah comes and dies, his agonizing death is not going to be something that is merely prophesied about, but it's going to be something that was predetermined. It will not be according to the desires of Satan. It will not be according to the will of men, but something that has been ordained by the eternal purpose of God. When Messiah comes and dies in the place of sinners, just as Isaiah has prophesied, it will be according to the holy purposes of God. Isaiah says, it will please the Lord. It will please the Father to bruise Him. And this word for bruise is the word crush. As olives are crushed in an olive press, it will please the Lord to crush Messiah. You say, I'm not sure I like a God like this. How can God take pleasure in crushing An innocent person in the place of others. That seems strange. This seems a little irrational. This seems outrageous. Well, the meaning of it is this. Messiah's death will be pleasing to God the Father, not because God the Father takes pleasure in seeing people agonize, but because through such agony, the perfect offering of sin will be made. Through Messiah's sacrifice, the Father's will will be done. So the first truth Isaiah wants us to understand about Messiah's death is that it will be according to God's sovereign pleasure and plan. It'll be according to everything that God has purposed, not just through the prophets and prophecy, but everything that God has purposed from eternity past. Messiah's coming and death is intertwined within the holy purposes of God. And then the second point that I want us to dwell upon this evening is the joyful truth that Messiah's death will bring about the justification of many. Throughout verses 10 through 12, we have several jubilant declarations regarding what Messiah's death will bring about. As I carefully read through the prophetic declarations again, I want you to take careful notice of the statements of success. Notice the statements of triumph, the statements of achievement. Notice the affirmative shalls spoken by Isaiah under the divine inspiration of the Spirit. Isaiah says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise Messiah. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Notice it. He 
shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul. He shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many. Affirmative, success, triumphant, and made intercession for the transgressors. Did you catch all of the declarations of success and triumph? In the final three verses of Isaiah 53, we have no less than ten different references of Messiah actually bringing about salvation for those whom God intends. Now this should lead us to pause and recognize the fact that Messiah's coming and Messiah's death will not be in vain. Messiah's death will actually save people from their sin. Messiah's purposes will be triumphant. Now don't miss what Isaiah declares in this prophecy. Isaiah does not say that Messiah's death has the potential of saving people. Isaiah declares that Messiah's death will actually bring about the salvation of his people. You say, God has a people? Yes, God has a people. Who are his people? Are his people the Jews? Well, not necessarily in a saving sense. Paul tells us not all Israel is Israel. Not all physical Jews are spiritual Jews. Not all who are of their father Abraham through nationality are of their father Abraham by faith. So who are his people? His people are those who benefit from his death. You say, doesn't everybody benefit from his death? No. The text says that a specific company of people will benefit from the saving accomplishments of his death and resurrection. Now, did you notice the reference of Messiah's resurrection? Isaiah says in verse 10 that Messiah will see his seed. He has a seed? Yes, it's a spiritual seed. Messiah will prolong his days, though he will die. His life will go on. He will prolong his days. He will see of the travail of his soul. How can this happen if Messiah remains dead after his death? It can't. So Isaiah is proclaiming the fact that Messiah will rise again. Messiah will see his spiritual descendants. 
through his death and resurrection, Messiah will have many spiritual children, which means that Messiah is a living Savior who conquers death on the behalf of his people. So back to the point Isaiah is making. Isaiah says, with certainty... That Messiah's death will bring about the salvation of his people and his people are referenced in the text as the many. These are the many. Verse 11. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify not everyone, but many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many. Who are the many? John chapter 1. But as many as have received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, the many are God's elect. The many are God's sheep. The many are God's children. The many are Christ's bride. So back to our question. Will Messiah accomplish anything in his death, burial, and resurrection? Isaiah says an affirmative yes and amen to the glory of God. God will, through the Messiah, bring about the salvation of those whose names are written in the book of life. Isaiah promises that Messiah, through his death and resurrection, will bring about a satisfactory result. Messiah's substitutionary sacrifice will justify many. You see, this is not a potential salvation. This is an actual salvation rooted in the sovereign purposes of God. Now, with these truths ringing loudly in our ear, I want to take what has been said of Messiah in Isaiah 53 and consider them in the light of what we read of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So we've looked at Isaiah 53. We've considered his prophecies. So the prophet Isaiah makes several prophecies concerning Messiah hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Has Messiah come? Can Isaiah's prophecies find their fulfillment in the life, the teachings, and the death of Christ? Well, I would have you consider first what the angel of the Lord affirmed to Joseph in Matthew 1.21. In Matthew 1.21, we read that she, Mary, shall, catch that word, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The angel doesn't say, well, Jesus has the potential of saving. Uh, Jesus might save if man is willing to believe. No, Jesus will conquer the hearts of his people. Jesus will break through the chains of death 
the dominion of Satan and save those who are his. Would Jesus Christ accomplish anything in his death and his coming? The angel of the Lord defends the same message as Isaiah, proclaiming that he will save his people from what? From their sins. And then in the continuation of our examination of whether or not Isaiah's words are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, I want you to listen to the words of Jesus himself. You see, it's one thing for Isaiah to prophesy something of someone hundreds of years before they come, but it's quite another to actually hear the claims of the one who proclaims to be Messiah. So Jesus says in Matthew 18, 11, For the Son of Man is come to do what? The Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. He did not say that the Son of Man is come merely to offer salvation. No, the Son of Man is come to save. Luke 5, 32, Jesus says, I am not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call to effectually call sinners to repentance. Is Jesus a failure? Does he call with everybody rejecting? No, he's going to internally, by the power of the Spirit, through the gospel, call many unto salvation. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, catch it, I will build my church. I will save souls. And the gates of hell, the powers of Satan, will not prevail against it. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. John 17, 2 and 3 as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So taking Isaiah's words and fusing them with the proclamations of Christ, do we find a fitting fulfillment regarding Isaiah's prophecies? Will the Messiah actually accomplish anything in His coming? Will Jesus, by His own mouth, affirms that Isaiah's prophecies are accurate? Jesus confirms that He will indeed save. And then finally, how can we talk about the life and death of Christ without giving consideration to what Jesus cried out on the cross? as Jesus was wounded for transgressions, as He was bruised for iniquities, as the Father laid on His Son the iniquity of His people, Jesus cried out on the tree, It is finished. What was finished? Not just His life, but the work of salvation. That was finished. Jesus became sin for his people. Jesus who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The price for sin has been paid. So in triumph, 
Jesus says, it is finished. And in double triumph, three days later, Jesus gloriously rose again from the grave. Did Jesus accomplish anything? In his death, burial, and resurrection? Not only do we read of Jesus saying that he would, but we find that Jesus brought about the salvation of others through his gospel. And this is what the Apostle Paul or Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost proclaims. In fact, the essence of Peter's whole sermon in Acts chapter 2 hinges on this one point. Peter says to the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost that Christ's crucifixion was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Peter said that Jesus of Nazareth was a man approved of God. Peter said that though they, those who were present by their wicked hands, have taken the Messiah and crucified him, Peter wants them to know that Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Peter said that God hath made Jesus, whom they crucified, both Lord and Christ. So here Christ came, just as Isaiah had prophesied, and Peter is telling them that they missed him. They rejected him, they scorned him, they despised him. They called out for his death as a common criminal, just as Isaiah had proclaimed in Isaiah 53. Yet, 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 Peter says... On that day, anyone who will repent and believe on Christ's name shall be saved. Peter says, the promise of salvation is for all whom the Lord shall call. All who will call upon the name of the Lord. Do you see how these truths build upon one another? Do you see how Isaiah in Isaiah 53 starts his prophecy speaking about the rejection of Messiah by men and how he hinges it on a high note of success. And then Peter in Acts chapter 2 starts with the people's rejection of Messiah, the people's rejection of Christ, and then he ends with the blessings of salvation. This truth is the climax of the message of Scripture and the work of Christ. And I'm submitting to you this evening that this is the apex of the Christmas story. The apex, the climax of the Christmas story is that Christ has come to save. The focal point of Christmas is that Jesus is a triumphant Savior. He has saved His people. He is saving His people. He will save His people. What is Christmas all about? Christmas is about Christ actually, truly reconciling sinners to himself. And if you know Jesus Christ tonight as personal Savior and Lord, you can attest to this truth. If he truly has saved your soul, you know 
that he is a triumphant savior. He broke into your life. He tore down all the idols. He caused you to see the light of his glorious gospel and he adopted you into his kingdom. Though you spurned, though you rejected, though you questioned, though you doubted, God broke through, took your stony heart of unbelief and gave you a heart of flesh, gave you a heart that loves him. He's a triumphant savior. He's not just the baby in the manger. You see, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the king who prevails over all, over sin, over death, over the grave. So with all this said, let me close by asking you three very important questions. In light of all that we've considered this evening and all that we've considered from Isaiah 53, let me ask you, number one, has Jesus Christ, this promised Messiah, saved you? Is He your Savior? You see, it's one thing to agree with the truths of Scripture. It's another thing to actually receive Christ as your own. It's one thing to believe that the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled in Christ in a mere intellectual sense, it's another thing to actually know in your heart that your sins have been forgiven. So I'm asking, has Christ actually saved you from your sin? Is there evidence in your life that you are His child? Now don't be too quick to answer because the Jews missed Him. Here they were, possessors of God's Word. Here they were in the nation that Christ dwelt in. Here they were, eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles, and they missed Him. So don't foolishly presume that you know Him. Search the Scriptures and find out whether the characteristics of being a true Christian can be found in your life. That's question number one. Is Jesus Christ your Savior? Is He your Lord? Is He the one your soul loves? Question number two. How do you view Christ? And then connected with that, how do you view Christ's work? Do you view Him in a pessimistic way or in an optimistic way? Do you view his work in a pessimistic nature or an optimistic nature? Do you consider him to be a successful savior or a failing savior? Now, the reason I'm asking this question is because sometimes as we look around at the spiritual barrenness of our land, we're tempted to think if Christ is still accomplishing his purposes, we wonder if God is still seeking and saving the lost. And I'm submitting to you tonight that in the closing verses of Isaiah 53, Isaiah is presenting to us a Messiah, a Christ that is triumphant. So we need to see him as that. We need to have a high view, a high regard of Jesus Christ the Messiah and King.
How do you view Christ, the eternal one? And then finally, question number three. Are you thankful for the gift of salvation? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9 that believers ought to be thankful for God's unspeakable gift. God knows that it's possible to take such a gift for granted. The Lord knows it's possible for us to forget all that God has done for us in Christ to provide us with salvation. So the final question we need to be confronted with this Christmas is, are you thankful for the gift of salvation? And then in what ways are you exhibiting that you are thankful to God? Thanksgiving with the lips is good, but thanksgiving is better. In the midst of all the heartaches, in the midst of all the sorrows, in the midst of all the losses, listen, we can rejoice that Jesus Christ is a good shepherd. If God be for us, who can be against us? So if I can give one pastoral admonition this Christmas, I would encourage you to stop and reflect upon the gracious gift of salvation. Among all the busyness, in the midst of all the hustle and bustle of Christmas, among all the commercialization of Christmas, stop and consider the great things that God has done for you. Be still and know that God is God. I mean, truly, before you pillow your head tonight, think about all that God did, not just for humanity at large, but that all God did for you. These promises were fulfilled for you individually. Isaiah proclaimed them for, for you God worked through all the messy circumstances of humanity to bring Messiah uh, uh, to this world for you. Messiah died for you. And so Paul says that he, Christ, died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died and rose again. You see, we do a lot of gift-giving around Christmas, don't we? God has given us the eternal gift, the most wonderful gift, the inexpressible gift. And so it's only reasonable that we gift our hearts and our lives back to Him. It's our reasonable service to come back to the Lord and give Him our hearts, give Him our time, give Him all that we have and say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's only reasonable.